You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. And my guest today, John Pfaff, uh, is a professor of law at Fordham University. He's also the author of a book called Locked In. It's really one of my favorite books on criminal justice reform. And I think it's a really sort of admirable effort to sort of make the criminal justice reform movement in the United States a little bit more intellectually honest. Um, a lot of my thinking on criminal justice issues was really shaped by this book. Uh, I've been interested to discover over the past couple of years that uh, John, I think, does not agree with a lot of my takes on criminal justice. It's an interesting uh, sort of illustration that you can read a book and come with some very different takeaways from the author's own views on these kind of things. Uh, but we had a conversation. I mean, I think we had a lot of points of agreement uh, on aspects of mass incarceration. I think continue to uh, maybe agree to disagree about the value of police staffing and sort of preemptive patrol as a crime-fighting strategy. Uh, but, you know, we got into a lot of interesting stuff. He has a lot of important points to make about the progressive prosecutor movement, some other things that are in the news but haven't been covered all that well. Um, so I think you're gonna you're gonna learn a lot from this. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, John Pfaff, uh, is a professor of law at Fordham University. He's the author of a fantastic book, Locked In, that came out uh, a few years ago. It's actually more recently than I remembered. It's like a lot has a lot has happened in the world since 2017. Um, but I, I, I think the main themes of this book are still incredibly relevant. You know, things have changed in the criminal justice situation. We're, we're going to talk about that. But I think this book gives really important sort of background context to how different people are thinking about the criminal justice questions that that we continue to face today. Um, so I'm really glad to have you on. I, I, I regret, honestly, not having done it sooner. Um, but thank you. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you so much. I'm looking, I'm looking forward to this. Okay. So, you know, I always think it's really good in life to look at, you know, how does the U.S. compare to other countries, right? Like, what are problems that seem unusually severe here or things that we're, we're good at? And obviously, I mean, I think most people know this, but we have a lot higher share of our population in prison uh, than other wealthy countries. And that continues to be the case despite some trend toward toward de-incarceration in recent years. Yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly right. You know, the, the popular statistic is that, you know, we have about 5% of the world's population and something in the order of 20 to 25% of the world's prisoners. Um, that actually might understate our, our relative share uh, because that comparison combines prisons and jail populations and while we only have about three quarters of a million people in jail on any given night, we cycle about 10 million people through our jails every year. Uh, so there's a much bigger churn over there. There are no countries that are, are close to us. The only ones that come closer, like Russia and Kazakhstan and places like that. Um, critics do point out that Iran and North Korea are not necessarily on the list. Uh, I think if that's your point, that's, that's not a winning argument. Also, you know, obviously China's numbers are deflated. They don't count what they're doing in like with the Uyghurs as, as part of their prison population, which it obviously is. Um, but again, if, if the argument is that we're fourth behind Iran, North Korea, and China, that's a pretty bad fourth position for us to be right. in. Right. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, you're looking at a comparison class of repressive dictatorships. Right. Um, if you, if you look at, I don't know, our, our peer countries, Canada, France, um, it's, our rate, our, our combined rates around six or seven hundred per hundred thousand. France is around ninety, right? Mm -hmm. we're, we're almost an order of magnitude more oppressive in terms of prisons in France and Germany. You know, the, the most 
incarcerated Western European countries, England, and they're at around 200 versus our six or 700, right? So it's just a, a whole different category of, of, of incarceration. And so, I mean, these are facts. I, I mean, the, the numbers are stunning and, and I bet a lot of people don't know them still to this day. But I do think that in progressive circles, this is something people are aware of. The phrase mass incarceration exists. Um, but a big part of your book is dedicated to arguing against um, what you call, I, is it called the, the standard view, the conventional view? I, I forget. What, what. I call it the standard story in my book is sort of the term I use, which is sort of this idea that it's driven by war on drugs uh, and that there's something sort of uniquely pernicious about private prisons and, and a focus much more on kind of sort of legislators is kind of driving this process, right? And- yeah. I mean, there's there's a couple different components of it, right? But in both cases, right, the, the war on drugs thing, if it were true that the reason the United States is such an incredible outlier is that we had like millions of people in jail for smoking pot, you know, in their bedroom somewhere, it would be an easy like a really easy fix, right? Like no, nobody thinks there should be huge numbers of people locked up for incredibly long sentences for nonviolent drug offenses. Like you, you, you could just let them out. Right. And I think that's why, and is, I, I, I understand exactly why that's kind of where the reform conversation started, right? You don't have like this giant 40 year buildup in prisons that's unprecedented in American history or worldwide. And the way you start rolling back is, Hey, let's talk about murder, right? You start by talking about marijuana and these other drugs. And that's, that made complete sense. The problem is we just got stuck there, right? And, and not just even stuck there, but we got stuck there in a way that makes the bigger issues actually harder to address. So I think the number of people don't know, but everyone knows how many people are in prison. What they don't realize is only about 14% of them are there for drug cases. Um, and only about 1% of them are there for marijuana cases. Right. And, and so it's just not this marijuana story. Yeah. And there's, I, I mean, I think there's like, there's good arguments for marijuana legalization separately in the policy yes. conversation. And of course it always makes sense if you want to tackle a problem, like start with the easy part. Right. You know, I, like I get it, but it's, I mean, I think an important meta point, right, around your book is that if you, if you emphasize the easy stuff to the point where people become misinformed, you're like, you're not actually going to make progress on the, the problem. Someone is going to pass a bill to relax nonviolent drug sentencing. And then you're going to look back five years later and like nothing will have actually changed because it's not, it's just not that big of a deal. It's actually even worse than that because usually the way we reform the drug laws is as part of a deal, right? We'll make things less tough for the nonviolent offenses, but in exchange, we're going to make these violent crime sanctions even worse. And given that over half of all people in prison are there for a violent crime, we're actually scaling back the way we punish the smaller percent by toughening the way we punish the bigger percent. So it could actually almost be counterproductive in the long run. It's not even not helpful. It's actually almost harmful or potentially harmful uh, to, right. to the way we draw these lines. Right. Like if you tell people, okay, like we're going to really focus on the violent criminals, it's like, fine, but that's already who's filling the, the prisons, right? You're talking about an increased in incarceration agenda, if, if that's what you do. And, and I mean, it's worth contextualizing this, right? Because the, the war on drugs, quote unquote, as a, construct involves a lot of prosecuting of violent criminals, right? That you have illegal organizations dedicated to trafficking and selling drugs because these are illegal markets. There's violence associated with them. So like in some sense, right? Yeah, you know, if if you hear law enforcement saying like, okay, like we're gonna, we're gonna go after the after the drugs. Right. Like that still means mostly arresting people for violent crimes and certainly because the prison sentences are longer, right? That's what you get. It's maybe people involved in the drug trade, but they're not um, sort of like feel good uh, kind of stories. Right. And, and this is where the actual like policy approach gets, gets incredibly convoluted. You know, on, on the one hand, the police will say, look, we use drug cases to go after violence. And there is actually a certain amount of truth to that. You know, if you look at trends that I looked at data from New York state once, you know, the, the trends in people being locked up in New York state prisons for drugs 
they have almost no connection to New York State drug laws. They have almost everything to do with New York, New York City violence, right? The people in prison for drugs starts dropping long before New York changes its drug laws. And when New York does change its drug laws, the decline in prison populations don't change. They maintain their previous trend, right? So it's very, it seems as much more that we are using sort of drug enforcement as a proxy, right, to go after violence. On the flip side, people who sort of argue, well, it really is the war on drugs, say, look, John, you're saying it's all these violent crimes, but all those violent crimes really are coming from the war on drugs, right? If it weren't for prohibition, we wouldn't have these shootings. And, and that's not necessarily true either. You know, Julie Ovi has this, it was a journalist, is a journalist for the LA Times. She, she has this great book called Ghetto Side. She was embedded with a homicide division in the LAPD for, for several years. And her argument is the fact that drugs are a sufficient cause of violence, but not necessary. You know, that throughout history and around the world, if you have a bunch of young men with no real upward mobility, ready access to weapons, and the state's not doing a good job preventing violence, which describes a lot of poor minority communities across America, they will turn to violence. And so if you take the drug fight out of it, other fights will, will take their place. The cause will change, but the violence won't change that so much because it's, it's a, the drug war, the, the fighting over drugs is much more a symptom of deeper challenges than, than the cause, right? And, and so I, I think at every turn, the war on drugs doesn't really explain why we're here. Take it away. And I'm not sure all that much will change. And I mean, I think, you know, I, I saw a study recently was looking at what what happened um, when marijuana was legalized. Two people were involved in marijuana trafficking. And it wasn't that like those guys became legal marijuana entrepreneurs, right? Instead, like business people with connections and access to capital and a knowledge of the permitting system, like they opened legal marijuana business and people who've been involved in crime were like still faced whatever barriers they face, had whatever willingness to engage in risky behavior they had. And they sort of went on to other kinds of illegal activity. Um, and I mean, that's kind of what, what, what you're saying, right? That it's like, it, the situation is not like fundamentally changed by tinkering with with the drug laws. And I've also had, you know, police officers have told me that like they didn't like the idea of marijuana legalization in D.C. basically because they just like enjoy having like pretextual reasons to stop. Right. right? In their heads, at least, it's like they know who, quote unquote, the criminals are. And like the more stuff that's illegal, like the more they can arrest them. Um, even though it's not like they thought they were going to stamp out marijuana right. by keeping it illegal, right? So it's it, it, these, these things are very tied in in a, in a weird way. But but your point is that like the nonviolent drug offender is just not the cause of the extreme outlier prison situation in the United States. Exactly, and and it's even less of an ex- explanation than the data suggests, right? You know, the data suggests about fourteen percent of people are in prison as sort of classified as nonviolent drug offenders for offenses in prison. But some fraction of those, we have no idea what it is because our data is so terrible. But there are lots of people who get arrested for, say, domestic violence. And during the arrest, they have heroin on them. And then the domestic violence, the assault charge falls apart. The partner won't testify. They don't want the charge to go forward. And so the plea deal they hammer out is you plead guilty to the heroin, but we're going to demand prison time because of the violence, right? But you're going to show up in our data as a nonviolent drug offender, which, you know, actually might be in, in some ways the other sort of weird challenge about ending the war on drugs is that it can make certain sanctions worse. Like right now, when you've got the assault charge, but you don't want all the consequences of a violent crime conviction, which carries all sorts of extra lifelong impediments that a nonviolent conviction doesn't, right? The DA can say, okay, fine. I'll drop the violence. I'll charge you for the drugs. But if drugs aren't a crime, all they have is the violence, right? And, and perhaps you should change all those back end life restrictions and, and we should, right? But as long as those are in place, like the dynamics here are, are, are convoluted and, and, tricky and there, there's a lot of room for unintended consequences to to appear. You also talk about private prisons, which I, I feel like I feel like you've actually had a good amount of success in getting people to be less obsessed with this. Um, but certainly years ago, this would be the thing, right? That like Democrats in particular, are, well, Democrats are more attentive to what criminal justice reformers, uh, you know, want to talk about. They also just like generally like to talk about how privatizing things is, is bad. They right. like public sector unions. So people will stand up and say, ah, we can't have these like for-profit prisons that are that are locking people up. Um, this is just not like a major factor in anything. 
Right. And again, it's one of those things where it's not just that it's not a major factor, but actually by focusing on privates, it actually causes harm because it distracts us in important ways from, from the publics, right? You know, so the number is that about 8% of all prisoners in the United States are held in private prisons. About 92% are held in, in the publics. Uh, there's no evidence that private prisons are are any better or worse than public prisons. Uh, there, there is some data from the feds showing that fed privates are worse, but the fed privates are unique in that they're almost entirely designed to hold foreigners facing deportation post-sentence. So the, the incentive for you no know, re-entry is zero, right? And right. so it's not perhaps surprising that they're so terribly run. But my real concern with the privates isn't so much that they're so minor, but it's that the exact same profit incentives exist in the publics and we miss it, right? You know, we spend $50 billion a year on public prisons and something about two thirds or more of that is wages and benefits to the correctional staff. That's a huge financial incentive, right? And, and every defect you point to in the privates, it exists in the public. So people say, fine, but privates have these special contracts that say if the beds aren't occupied, you have to pay for the bed anyway. That's an incentive to keep money flowing. Well, New York State has had one of the largest sustained decarcerations in the country, yet we're littered with like empty prisons that are still up and running, right? We're still paying the guard, correctional officers, all their salaries to sit in prisons that have no one in them. That's identical to the private prison bed contract, but at, at massively bigger scale. Right. And, and you know, and, and the lobbying dynamics, right? I mean, those corrections officers, they have their interest groups, they want to be employed, they want their benefits. And you have, um, you know, communities in which it's a significant enough source of jobs and things that, you know, not just the people directly employed in the prison, uh, they want it, it's, it's valuable. And the sort of ownership status of the facility, you know, is just like not going to be a significant uh, sort of change there, right? It's It's something that's it's convenient for Democratic Party politicians because they can then say they're being anti-incarceration without taking on like unions that are affiliated with AFSCME and other groups that they like. Uh, but you're Although not- ironically, the, the law enforcement unions aren't Democrats, right? right. <laughs> I mean, when, when Scott Walker gutted public sector unions in Wisconsin, he carved out three. Correctional officers, cops, and firemen, right? Because those, they donate to Republicans, right? I, I once gave a talk at a conference sponsored by the AFL-CIO, and I said, you know, the, I've never had a room turn against me faster than when I said, you know, the only way we solve this is to go after the public correctional officer unions. And they're like, we stand shoulder to shoulder with our union brothers, but like, they're not your brothers, right? They're everything you're pushing for in D.C., they push against, except for, you know, unionization. And, and so it is this interesting thing where, where no liberals don't want to go after public sector unions. And I get the general instinct right there. Teacher unions are under attack. Other unions are generally under attack. But law enforcement unions aren't their friends, right? They are very much committed to every other policy in in, in opposition to, to what liberals and Democrats want. Right. I mean, but, you know, and, and I do think that there has been some some change. I mean, once Walker discovered that you can just be totally unprincipled in your legislating around this if you want, that then has made, I mean, I think a lot of these, those members were more politically conservative, but perhaps cross-pressured. Right. If Republicans were going to be super ideological about it and take collective bargaining rights away from everybody, that would be one thing. But there's there's a kind of new new alignment happening. Obviously, the law enforcement unions love Trump and vice versa. Um, But this now makes it maybe easier for liberal politicians to see the situation as it exists. Yes. So the obvious problem here is that people people don't really want to help violent criminals, right? I mean, it, it sounds horrifying. It's like, well, you're comparing our prison stats and you've got to look at like maybe Iran or North Korea. Um, it's like, oh my God, John, like we've got to do something. But then it's like, okay, but you're actually talking about murderers. Um, and that just seems like a hard sell. Yeah, it is and it isn't, right? I mean, we have about, not in 2020, but in the look at 2018, 2019, right? We had about as many murders per year as we had in 1970. Total, not per capita, just total murders. The 100 million more people, same number of murders. Um, but we had as many people in prison just for homicide in the 20 teens as the entire U.S. prison population in the 1970s, right? And so our, our view on homicide has changed, right? Which means that it's not something immutable, right? We, we have gone, we, we have viewed homicide as, as a less 
throw away the key ish kind of offense. And we remain, you know, an outlier worldwide in that, in that respect. And it, it, it flies in the face of all the data, right? We, we know that as a general matter, people age into and age out of violence. It, it's actually one of the reasons why I, I resisted using the term violent offender, right? Because it sort of makes it seem like this is who that person is. This is a violent person. But, you know, I'm less violent now than I was when I was 20, right? You know, my hormone levels have shifted. I'm, I'm, my brain has matured. I'm just older and slower, right? However fast I would have lost that fight when I was 20, at 45, I'm getting beaten down immediately, right? Everything's just aches and is, I'm, and my kids make me tired. I'm just tired. And we know that, you know, this is a, a consistent pattern. I actually once pulled graphs from Boston in the 50s, Chicago in the 80s, Canada in Holland. Or sorry, this this age profile of people's engagement in violence. And you can't distinguish which graph comes from which place, right? It's, it's, a, it's sort of a human constant. Um, and so what we've engaged in is this, this incredibly punitive project um, that doesn't have empirical support behind it, and which isn't how we've always treated violence Anyway, right, and and so while things are bad right now, it's, I have some hope that this is a topic where views do shift, even if slowly and, and painfully. Okay, that's a good place to, uh, to take a quick break and then come back and, and talk about this this question of very long sentences. Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. You know, I, I, one one touchstone for for me on this. You're talking about the the shift that that happened in American law enforcement is Gary Becker is a you know economist, a sort of um, free market guy, and he does a, a few papers, I think, on a kind of economic analysis of crime. And he sort of says, look, you know, it's um it's really hard to like solve crimes. Um, it takes a lot of person hours to go out there. You may not catch the guy anyway. Then if you do catch him, you have to prosecute him. That's a whole big pain in the butt. Um, so a much simpler way to increase the deterrent impact of the criminal justice system is to just like double all the sentences um, rather than trying to, to catch a, a larger share of the offenders. I, I don't know to what extent people were explicitly following that logic as they they ramped it up but it's it's certainly like one way of thinking about the the system and then i think the other way of thinking about it you know what what you're saying is that prison has this um incapacitative effect right somebody's in prison they're not on the streets um they may be committing crimes but if they are it's the, the victims are other prisoners and maybe citizens don't care about that but then when you have people serving like 20 year sentences or more you wind up getting it's like a lot of middle-aged people and and older people and you know it's like i just turned 40 and we just like we all we all get soft Right. Like yeah. there's very low chance that people into middle age are going to be committing serious violent crimes and the risks of having them out on the streets are just objectively pretty low. 
and but the costs of imprisoning them remain very high. I mean, if they're financially high, it's high, it's high in humanitarian terms, right? So that like scales perfectly, 10 years versus 20 years. But the whatever crime fighting effect do you think you're gonna have sort of fades out? Yeah. I mean, so Gary Becker is actually the uh the chair of my dissertation committee. And I I, I know I, I view him as one of the probably one of the five or six greatest economists ever. And I view that paper on prisons as something that we'll come to view as probably one of the worst things he ever wrote in terms of its impact, even though it is cited in his Nobel Prize, you know, citation. I mean, his argument was basically that, like you said, it's this perfect trade-off that from a deterrence point of view, a hundred percent chance of one year in prison is the exact same as a 50% chance of two years or a 25% chance of four years, right? The, the expected punishment on all cases is one year and that will deter equally. And we now know, psychologically speaking, that that's just wrong, right? It's completely wrong. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you have kids? I do. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I've got one too. It's just like, that's just like the total opposite of like parenting. I mean, not to compare my six-year-old to a, a murderer necessarily, but you know, it's like <laughs> kids misbehave all the time and they give you advice on how you're supposed to deal with it. And like what they tell you is that like, you have to be like, no, don't do that. Take the toy away right away. But like, don't be super harsh. Don't freak out. Take the switch away for for a week. You ha- it has no more of an impact right now than taking the situation for tonight, right? Hey. They're, they're not, they're, at the moment they're having that, that, that tantrum, they're not able to think like, well, if I keep going, I'm going to lose this for two days or four days or seven days, right? Those extra days do nothing. It's, it's what happens in the, in that moment. And right. And that's a sort of a general human constant, right? That is that, that threat of being caught matters a lot more than that, you know, that further risk. I mean, crime tends to be committed by young people, right? Late teens, early twenties, right? The insurance companies get this. For whom is car insurance the most pricey? Mm-hmm. 16, 17, 18-year-old men, right? Boys, right? They're insurance is through the roof because they are impetuous and impulsive and they live in the moment. They're not thinking 10 minutes down the line, much less 15 years down the line, right? And, and so it's clear that you know, we, as a general matter, have tended to focus much more on wrapping up severity and we don't necessarily spend enough on, on that certainty. And that gets things completely completely backwards, right? And, you know, the way to respond to rising homicide is not to lock people up longer, right? It doesn't give you deterrence and it keeps people in prison long past when they pose any sort of risk. It's to focus on upfront things that can actually stop it right then and there in in the moment. Um, but yeah, you know, in 2016, when Chicago had a budget crisis, they cut the street level stuff and jacked up the, the punishments at the state level. And you talk about the incentives facing prosecutors um, in, in in your book. And, and I think this has driven a fair amount of the sort of political moves to, to reform here. But, you know, I thought this was a great point of yours, which is, you know, I can look at statistics and say, okay, the odds, you know, that this given person will reoffend are quite low. But when you're talking about a country of millions of people, right? Like somebody out of that pool is going to reoffend. And then you get the news story, right? It's like so and so lets such and such out of jail. And then two weeks later, you know, he does this horrible thing. And nobody's going to write up a news story about like the 500 other cases of right. people who got out of prison. And I mean, some of them, maybe their life turned out great. Some of them, I don't know, they're having a hard time, but like they're not killing anybody. They're right. also not in, in prison. But like, but but that's not that's not news, right? So the the politics are tough, you know, because you you face this incentive to like avoid the bad story of he let the bad guy out of jail and then he did something bad. Right. So, it's, uh, you know, the, the term you sort of the crime world, it's called the Willie Horton effect. So after this notorious ad from the 1988 presidential campaign where this kind of thing happened, you no know, Massachusetts had this furlough program that led people out of prison to stay connected to the communities. They come back, you know, at, at, after the weekend or a week away. And at the time of the 88 campaign, we knew that about 99% of all people released in Massachusetts returned without incidents. Because I read an article in the Christian Science Monitor published in 1988 saying it's about, it's an over 99% success rate. But, you know, one person runs off, Willie Horton, he absconds, he runs off to Maryland, he commits a brutal home invasion, he beats up the man in the house, he rapes the woman, he's now serving life without parole in, in Maryland, and became sort of this notoriously racist TV ad launched against Dukakis when he ran against Bush for president. As a side note, you can watch the Horton ad on YouTube and compare it to the ads running in 2020, 2018, 2016, you can barely detect the racism. It's actually would not make the top 10 racist ads of the past 
five or six years, which is a completely different, far more depressing issue to, to think about. But the idea was that because this ad sort of you know, making Horton out to be this terrifying, you know, scary black man sort of threatening voters, it cost a caucus election. A lot of really interesting things to unpack about that. First, political scientists think it had almost no impact on the election whatsoever, right? That Dukakis actually outperformed what he should have done given all the other sort of more fundamentals of, of ADA, right? And so we talk about this Horton effect when the case itself that we talk about, there's no evidence that it actually mattered. Um, and so I think there's sort of two Horton effects, right? One is that are politicians afraid that if they make that one mistake, it'll haunt them? Absolutely, right? And we're the only country in the world that elects as prosecutors. We're the only country in the world that elects as judges. Our criminal legal actors are uniquely scared of this. That part is unambiguously true. It's much less clear that what they are afraid of is actually something to be afraid of, right? There actually was another example of the Willie Horton effect uh, years before, uh, the state released two people on furlough because most states have furlough programs until the Horton ad. Both of them committed murders on furlough. One of them killed a police officer. You know, the, the police unions demanded to end the furlough programs. Prison officials wanted them over, but the governor said no. Like these furlough programs, these programs are essential for reentry, for rehabilitation. I'm going to stand by my furlough program. And that governor was noted progressive Ronald Reagan, whose career was destroyed when he became, you know, president, right? Um, or, you know, Mike Huckabee, when he was governor, he commuted over a thousand sentences. It's one of the most extensive commutations of any governor in, in modern times, one of whom went up to, to Oregon and murdered four police officers in a coffee shop. And, you know, Huckabee has not become president like Reagan did, but I don't think that is what has ended Huckabee's ambitions, right? There's other things that have gotten Huckabee's way, mostly, I think. Huckabee. But, you know, we had the sense that if we screw up, I'm going to pay for it. Um, in fact, during the debates about Brooklyn's DA elections a couple years ago, the, the acting DA, who's now our, our current DA, Eric Gonzalez, got up at a debate and said this openly. He's like, I will embrace bail reform, but I need you to promise me that when that one guy does one thing wrong, right, you won't vote me out the next time. Like, you need to stand by me when these mistakes inevitably happen. They believe this. I just don't know if it's true. Right. And, and so we have this weird thing where we talk, and I myself am guilty of this. We talk about this Willie Horton effect without really acknowledging that it might be actually empirically unfounded. The, the politicians might have a lot more room to take risks. And I think the best example of that actually is, is Krasner's reelection. Well, I mean, he's not reelected yet, but I think he's got a pretty good shot. Yeah, renomination. <laughs> his renomination, right? Is that if you look at where he won, he did best where the shootings were the highest, right? So there's anything that should have been Hortonizing, right? The places that had the most violence under Krasner's term were the places that turned out the most to vote for him, which suggests that certainly local politicians have a lot of room to take risks that they might not think they can take right now. And suddenly, I mean, when your when your book came out, right in in, in twenty seventeen, um, the overall level of, of violence in the United States had fallen a lot uh, in the in the twenty years prior to that. And I think that it created an environment in which a lot of people were interested in rethinking um, some of the costs of of the criminal justice system. And we had um, conservative politicians, uh, you know. In some cases, embracing some of these ideas, Governor Huckabee, definitely an, an example of that. And, you know, people willing to say, you know, I'm going to I'm going to sort of bet on the math here. Right. That, right. you know, we can we can do something helpful to a very large number of people. We can save a lot of money. Um, there's some risk on the downside. But I, I do think that part of that was that the overall levels of violence were were in decline. Right. And it created a sort of an easy, um, well, I don't want to say easy. Uh, you know, I, I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't neglect. I mean, it, it takes, I think, meaningful political courage to do something different, uh, no matter what the, the situation is. Uh, but, but Krasner, who was a district attorney in, in Philadelphia, he was running in a, in a different context. Right, which is that there has been a very large increase um, in the number of people be being shot over the past year. That comes with people being much more concerned about violence and, and crime and what can be done in their community. And you see um, at least a much larger potential uh, for some kind of, of backlash against that. Uh, this didn't happen in, in Philadelphia. Um, you know, and I think you've made the point fairly persuasively that it, it's not like these reformed DAs uh, suddenly took over every city in America, 
right? Um, right. That the the trend in the violence seems pretty consistent across American cities. Right. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think the first thing that's important to note about the reform DAs is not only are they not everywhere, there's there's a sort of a consistent pattern I see in the cities that elect them, which is that there are cities that don't have so. Prosecutors are elected by counties, not by cities, but the progressive prosecutors tend to be in cities where the city and county are the same thing, right? So Philadelphia is both the city and the county. Uh, San Francisco, city and county. Baltimore, St. Louis, Brooklyn is even smaller, right? In, in the, in the places that have bigger counties, the city is an outsized part of that county. So Chicago, Boston, Portland, but these are places where the, where the city is a huge chunk of the county. And I think that's important, right? Because what it means is that the people who are experiencing both the crime and the problems of enforcement together have the loudest voice, right? You're cutting out the, the white suburbanites who see crime as a problem to be punished, but don't have to deal with the costs of, of bad policy, right? And so, so I think, first of all, that it's important to see sort of the, the non-random nature of where these progressive DAs have been elected tells a lot about sort of how the politics of punishment work, right? That too often our politics are being driven by the people who bear the least amount of the cost of mistakes. But yes, when we get to 2020, we see that homicide rose everywhere, right? Whether you had a progressive DA or a non-progressive DA, it didn't really seem to matter. Your homicide rate went up and went up fairly much proportionate with every other city in, in the country. Right. This this point you were making about that the county boundaries and stuff is, is important just to, in case people miss it, right? So in America, we have like this three-tiered government. We have states, we have counties, we have cities. Um, then we have a couple exceptions. So like New York City encompasses five counties. Um, and then a few cities are coextensive. They, the, the city is a county, right? So Baltimore, Philadelphia, San Francisco, um, I think are the big examples of that. Yeah, St. Louis too. St. Louis, okay. Then you have the other thing, which is sometimes the city and the county merge. So that's like Jacksonville and Indianapolis. But that's more like you dissolve the city right. and everything is the county, right? Which is to say that a lot's, important parts of suburban areas are kind of in there. Um, and then you have the sort of more normal thing, which is like the city of Miami and then Miami-Dade County. And the city is an important part, but not the whole thing. And it can sort of vary uh, from place to place in terms of like Chicago is the majority of Cook County. Uh, but Cleveland is like a smaller share of Cuyahoga right. County. So you can have a very African-American city, very African-American electorate, the people they're experiencing, the problems of crime, the problems of law enforcement, but they don't have the political voice over who is the prosecutor, which a lot of those votes are, are sort of suburbanites who are more insulated from, from all these issues. So you get this um, variation, but it's not it's not really random in terms of you know who wins and and what happens. But yeah, so we've we've seen crime uh, shootings really and 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 interpersonal violence rise in in almost every city. Um, there's like a handful of exceptions, right? I think Baltimore and um, a couple others. Right. Um, but so what? What makes like a reform prosecutor in in your view, right? If you if you do that analysis, because it's obviously not a not like a there's not like an official pin that you get. No, no. And in fact, when I when I posted like my 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 graph of this sort of murders versus progressivism on 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 Twitter, which is the one place I've published it so far, right? <laughs> I, I do it two different ways with two different definitions, and then I, I give my list because I admit my list is kind of my instinct plus talking to other people plus media coverage, right? Like we don't have a clear definition. And in some ways, the term is almost becoming impossible to use. Anyone can call themselves a progressive prosecutor. You know, everyone running in New York City right now, in Manhattan right now, has des described themselves as being progressive, but their views are, are radically different, right? Um, I mean, at, at the bare minimum, it's the idea that we really shouldn't prosecute low-level nonviolent crimes, uh, try and move things out of misdemeanor court, divert more things, perhaps trying to be much smarter and less aggressive on bail. You know, I think as you move into the more serious categories of progressivism, you get into things like decriminalizing sex work, right? Like refusing to prosecute cases against, against people accused of prostitution and other kinds of sex work offenses like that. Perhaps even changing how you punish serious violence. You know, to his credit, Krasner is one of the few in, in Philadelphia where he has started charging homicide cases that would have been first degree murder under his predecessor, their third degree murder under him, right? Which moves it from life without parole to a standard minimum of 10 years, right? Which, which, doesn't change much, 
policy-wise, but it, it will significantly change prison populations, you know, in, in 10 or 12 years when people are start being released who otherwise, otherwise wouldn't. Um, so it's a fairly strong continuum. I think the bare minimum is kind of less aggressive towards drugs and nonviolent offenses with more diversion and being better about bail. And then you start moving into sort of sex work and, and, and serious violence as you know, sort of the more progressive kind of end of things. So I, I want to take a, take another break and, and ask a, a couple more questions about that. So here's what's sort of interesting to me about this. Um, cause I, cause I see from your, your Twitter presence, I, I think you, you know, uh, align yourself with, with these progressive prosecutors. You want to, uh, d- defend them, um, against their critics, et cetera. But from what I can see, I mean, the moves that they are making in practice are not exactly locked in doctrine. Right. That, that a lot of it, a lot of the progressive prosecutor moves seem to me to deal with the lowest level offenses. Whereas my read of your book was, look, what we really ought to do is look at the longest prison sentences and like the tail end years of the longest sentences are almost all pure waste and cruelty. Like no matter how egregious the crime that the guy is doing 30 years for, cutting that down to 25 is like just a win, right? And it's like, it sounds crazy that like what you have to do is find like the most heinous offenders in the system and go easier on them. But that there's this actually like really powerful logic to that, that like the longest sentences are the most wasteful they do tend to go to people who've been convicted of serious offenses, but like nonetheless, like that is really where the senseless punishment is coming from. But like that's that's not what progressive prosecutors are doing exactly. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and, and to be clear, on the you no, know, people tend to think we have all these people serving incredibly long sentences for like even however many people run for drugs, they think even drug people serve really long sentences. And right. in the federal system, they do, because the federal system is uniquely broken, right? But the median time to release for a nonviolent crime, drug or property, is one year, mm-hmm. right? So about half of all people in state prison are out within a year if they're in there for a nonviolent crime. Even for a violent crime, the median time to release is about four years, right? Longer than nonviolent, but not massive. The massive sentences are almost all murder. Right. right. So, you know, if you look at people who are in for 10 or more years, in, I, I looked at California a while ago and, and they, for the weirdest of their laws, they should have the fewest number in for murder for their long sentences, uh, compared to most states. And for them, about, if it's like 10 years or more, over half were just murder and almost all were serious violence. If you look at like 15 or 20 years, you're getting like 75, 80% are in just for homicide. The rest are attempted murder, armed robbery, rape. And so, yeah, one, you're right. Progressive prosecutors aren't, I mean, Krauser's doing some, right? He's moving life without parole to 10 years. That right. will pay yeah, off no, no, no. in 10 years. Most aren't doing much, but they're doing less harm than the conventional approaches are, are doing. And I think it's, it's about sort of also changing what the political role is, right? They're, they are advocating for other approaches, right? For they, I think they're much more willing to embrace things that can also reduce violence, right? Like Krasner has been very much up, you know, trying to get in front of things like safe injection sites and things that make sort of, you no know, drug use and, and, and substance abuse disorders easier to manage. That kind of progressive approach to other aspects of policy will lead to fewer serious violence, right? And, and so I, it's not, part of their job isn't just focusing on, on how we punish the serious violent crimes, but also being advocates for that policies that sort of create a better situation to, to reduce violence directly. Right. I mean, and I do think that that's, that's important because, I mean, you can sort of read that election, you know, different ways, right? I mean, I mean, one is he won, right? He, he won against a serious challenge. Um, there was a lot of money in that race. There was a lot of attention paid. Um, you know, it was, it was not trivial and, and he, he won, he won it. You know, the other is, you know, Pennsylvania is, is a swing state, right? Philadelphia is like the most liberal part of that whole state. If you want to continue to have like on some level, right? Like you, you, you want state level policy to move in a, in a kind of helpful direction, uh, where you can at least in, in places where, where it's viable. And 
if you're winning tough races in Philadelphia, like that means that means you might you might lose them statewide. Um, and at a minimum, like it would be desirable to show that you have like other approaches that that work. Right. That, you know, I'm going to I'm going to do X and, and it's going to it's going to help people. I, I had it's probably about a year ago. Jennifer Doliak was on here and we were talking about summer job programs, um, which, you know, it's like the the demographic for doing crimes, you can give those people other things to do, right? like an opportunity to get jobs, and they are just less likely to commit offenses. Uh, so at least like when I say that, like, I think progressives need to take the crime, the, the rise in violence seriously, you know, what I mean is not like, completely turn back the clock on reforms that we think are good, but actually make sure that we are doing some of the things that are like, okay, we have other ways to address this violence. But it's like, right. I, I think it's important to, at a time when the level of violence is rising, I think it's important to make sure that like you're actually doing them and that you're doing ones that that have reasonable prospects of success. Right. I think, and I think those things happen. I mean, I think, no, Patrick Sharkey, who's now at at Princeton, has this book called An Uneasy Peace about sort of Mm -hmm. the crime decline and what caused it. Um, and one of his theories that it really was sort of the development of these, a grass level community groups that kind of help rebuild and restabilize their neighborhoods, right? That it wasn't flooding things, no flooding things with police and sending people to prison. That works in in a very brute force, unsustainable kind of way. But sort of communities themselves did a lot of really hard work to, to rebuild their communities and we just don't give it any attention, right? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the work is there, but you know, every article I read on the rise in homicides, they, they cite the homicides. They, they mention the protests. They don't talk about COVID and then they immediately ask the police. So what do you think is causing this? And how should we fix this? And the police immediately say, well, more of us and that's what we need. And the article kind of ends, right? And, and so I think there's a tremendous amount of that work actually being done. It's just not getting the attention it deserves. And it, it, I think it, you know, means the fact it seems like there's, there's no alternative there, but for policing, that's because we tend to give the police kind of priority access for for the way we frame this discussion, which we we shouldn't do, I think. Yeah. And so, I mean, I mean, what one of the points that, that you make about this, right, is that there's a certain media, um, uh, I don't know what you call it exactly, you know, kind of like, it's like, well, there's an interesting story about progressive prosecutor elected in San Francisco. Oh, and there's also a lot more shootings in San Francisco. So right. let's ask questions about why that is. Whereas, I don't know what city you would point to, like maybe Tulsa, Jacksonville. maybe Jacksonville. Right. Jacksonville is a huge spike in homicides and no one talks about that. So so nothing interesting happened politically in Jacksonville. They have a Republican mayor. I have no idea who the prosecutor is, but it's just, it's the same stuff that it right. was. And they also have a big increase in shootings. And I have not seen a national newspaper parachute somebody into Jacksonville to like ask, hey, what's up here? Right. Exactly. Right. And 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 so my concern becomes that 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 framing, we have this this default instinct that, you know, reforms have to defend themselves in the way that the status quo doesn't. Right. That, you know, you can't adopt a reform unless you can show that it works. But no one says, well, they keep funding the police. Why don't they show us that they're working in a cost benefit justifiable kind of way, right? There's a, a very systematic misframing that 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 takes place here. So it looks like, yeah, I'm, I'm looking it up. It's 22% uh, increase in, in homicides in, in Jacksonville, um, which is which is a lot. And I think it's actually like historic highs, right? Like I think it's one of their highest homicide rates ever, right? Yeah. And while San Francisco remains at near historic lows, right? So you have this hand wringing over San Francisco that had a decent sized increase, but 2019 was its lowest homicide rate in like recorded modern times, right? And that gets all this angst. Jacksonville hits historic highs and we don't talk about them at all. But so one, I mean, one question about this is the relationship to the pandemic, right? I mean, I could tell a story sort of following Sharkey, following uh, old uh, Jane Jacobs kind of ideas, um, Paul Grogan. Uh, I, I learned some of this from when, when I was in college, but it's like when people are sort of home and they're telling you, like, don't go out and all kinds of places of business are closed, so there's nothing to do, you just like don't have like normal people like out and about uh, being present. And so you have this decline in sort of like non-police 
informal surveillance right, right of, of neighborhoods. And then you have people who are uh, self-selected non-rule followers outside doing stuff, getting in fights, starting shit, getting into cycles of violence. Yep. So that kind of makes sense. But then the question is, is like, well, do we expect it to recede as things normalize? Because if we do, then it's like – Okay, like a lot of weird stuff happened in 2020. Right. Um, we, we can write it off. But I mostly hear from people that they don't expect it to like automatically re- recede with the waning of the pandemic. And so I, I wonder what your view on that is. Yeah, I think the challenge we face, I mean, nothing is set in stone, but, but, but violence and, and lethal violence in particular – can kind of be self-sustaining, right? There, there was a study in Chicago looking at sort of social networks and shootings uh, that found that on average, each shooting produced at least two to three subsequent shootings over, over the next few years in sort of retaliations and counter-retaliations. Sometimes you could link up to 50 shootings back to one initial shot. In one case, they linked something like 300 subsequent shootings all kind of spiraled from one initial bullet, right? Someone shot someone else and the retaliations just spread and, you know, is 300 subsequent people were shot at or shot over the next three or four years in, in response, right? And so there is this concern that you can see violence in 2021, in 2022, that still is in many ways, perhaps pandemic violence, right? That it, it is those, in, that initial spike kind of still working its way through, you know, very dense, very disrupted social networks. And obviously you can prevent that and there are better and worse ways to intervene. But I, I, I don't think that, you know, when the, that homicide violence is not the kind of thing where like when the pandemic goes away, everything goes back to normal and all that past violence just stops, right? The, 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 the connection between years is, is there's a causal link over time between shootings last year and shootings this year. Because you 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 have the people who survived shootings, you have their friends, you have they're they're all still out there and these kind right. of cycles um continue and, and sustain themselves, right? So I, I mean that's I think, you know, just a big point that I want people to to kind of take away from that like we can we can sort of argue about past causes all we want, um, but we probably have to do something to step in and and break this. And if we don't want that to be um, endlessly longer uh, sentences, you have to sort of come to the table um, with some kind of ideas, right? There seems to be some hope for these, um, I guess I call them like violence interrupters, right. sort of like civilian uh, gang intervention kind of people. Um, I don't, I feel like the evidence on that is not like super high quality, um, but it's an idea that, that could do something. Um, getting people jobs is probably good probably good even if it doesn't impact violent crime um you know people should have jobs Uh, but i i wonder about this tactic of sort of easing up on enforcement against low-level crimes because that it just it doesn't seem to me as well supported by the evidence as some other things and I can imagine creating creating like a very disorderly situation in which people are sort of robbing cars for fun like it 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 creates a a dangerous sort of sort of vibe out in cities, and I feel like it's something I feel like the idea that we need to not prosecute property crimes is an idea that like is in the the neighborhood of John Faff, but like is not really what your book says, yeah, I mean, I don't come down in my book one way or the other on sort of how we should handle how sort of the country low level enforcement and and subsequent no serious crimes. No, there there was a study recently looking at data from Boston pre pre reform Boston, mm. based on sort of random assignment to the DA who's going to prosecute your case for low level cases, right? So you know people tend to get assigned to their DA the the prosecutor randomly, the case gets assigned randomly. Some DAs took misdemeanor court really seriously, some ADAs did not take it very seriously, and so your your punishment for for misdemeanor cases was sort of randomly determined by who you just got assigned to. And they found that being assigned to the less aggressive DAs had no impact on future offending, um, but did reduce, you know, your risk of sort of other life derailing implications, right? Suggesting that a lot of this misdemeanor enforcement provided no safety, uh, but did disrupt lives very seriously. I also just saw a paper the other day showing that 
sort of random police stoppings of a level of enforcement similarly didn't lead to any subsequent increase in crime, right? There, there are a fair number of papers showing that sort of this so-called Ferguson effect, right? That if you insult the police too much, they, they pull back and they don't do their job and that leads to crime. That, that, you know, there's no connection between that and homicide. There's other studies showing there's generally no real change in, in crime when the police sort of pull back in random kind of ways. And so I think the data increasingly shows that this kind of low level stuff that the sort of animated the broken windows idea sort of doesn't really have a lot of benefit. Although it's also important to realize that broken windows is a term that's used to mean two completely different things, right? Yes. There's broken windows as it was described in the initial article, which is not actually how the NYP did it, which is actually this kind of like, you know, cover up the graffiti or literally replacing windows, you know, putting brighter lights in. That does work, right? The actors are making neighborhoods physically more appealing and brighter and safer works. Broken windows is just sort of harassing every young person, especially every young black man that comes past you. That the data consistently shows has at best no effect and at worst actually is mildly harmful. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like there's almost three different things that went under the name broken windows, right? Like one is about this sort of physical appearance of the of the built environment. The second was I think the NYPD had an idea for a while that if you did a lot of arrests for trivial offenses, um, that you could capture a lot of illegal firearms, right? That that was a, that was a tactic because the, the nature of a concealed gun is that you can't see it. But if you just like arrest everybody, then you can search them and then you find the illegal guns. And then at least the claim is that removing illegal guns from the street is is reducing murder. It's not actually that like arresting people for jumping the turnstile right. reduces murder, but it's that short of giving the police x-ray vision, that was like the best they could come up with. And then the other is the idea that low-level arrests per se have a kind of benefit. Um, and, and that was what that study of the, um, the Suffolk County prosecutor's office sort of cuts against, right? Was saying that, look, it's it can get really bad for your life uh, to go to, to prison for even a short span of time. Um, so we should maybe have a higher bar um, for, for when we kind of do that to people. At the same time, I mean, it seems a little unsatisfying <laughs> to say, well, you know, we have like thousands of extra people being being murdered over the past year and uh, we don't really know. We don't really know what to do about it. Yeah, but I, I don't think it is that we don't know what to do about it. I mean, like you said, mm-hmm. we understand that things like providing them with things to do, just getting them off the street so they're, they're, they're engaged in employment, longer school, after school activities, like things that provide structure. We know these things can reduce violence, right? They, they don't do it in the satisfying way that putting someone in handcuffs and saying, we responded to this does, right? They're not reactive. They're more proactive. And again, the problem with proactive is that you still face the the ambiguous politics of, of this Horton effect, right? But we know that, you know, drug treatment plays a big role. The states that adopted Medicaid expansion saw huge drops in crime the first year of Medicaid expansion, right? Because of access to, to non-drug court drug treatment. I think there are lots of sort of programs out there. We know providing more stable homes might, you know, might reduce someone's inclination to offend, but also removes targets from the street, right? Uh, a homeless person now has stable housing. They're not there to be victimized in, in, in the first place, right? They're not out there at night where they're vulnerable, right? And, and so I think we know that there are, there are lots of things to do. It, it's just that, you know, we have to encourage people to embrace doing it that way rather than the conventional approach. And I think we've seen a shift in that direction. You are seeing, Places being more willing to adopt non-police responses to things like homelessness and mental health, but but doing it in the context of sort of a crime reduction perspective, which suggests that we are beginning to appreciate that, you know, a lot of the lines we draw between criminal on the one side and social service on the other are kind of not exactly the right line to to draw. These things all overlap. Right. And, you know, I mean, well... I hope, I hope we can we can come up with with things that that work. I mean, I'm I'm super interested in in homelessness uh, as 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 an issue, which you know, I mean, has a social service component. You know, has often become a law enforcement topic, um, but is not well handled there. Uh, but which really does just you know, it comes back to housing policy, right? And right. you know, making sure we have a a system in which at least, you know, most people are able to to afford a place to live um rather than, you know, how do we police those who don't, right? How do we make sure people are not in that situation in in the first place? And, and you know, actually as, as you're talking, maybe like sort of another related sort of example of sort of how we can think about these things but 
don't, right? You know, there's not all that much evidence or it's very, it's weak evidence showing that bad economic conditions in general lead to more violent offending. There's some increase in property crime, not a lot of increase in violence. But there is evidence that the arrival of economic uncertainty can lead to violence, right? That if you're in a state of sort of durable poverty, right, the impact on violence isn't necessarily all that. I mean, the levels would be higher, but the, it's not going to change much. But when you suddenly face unexpected economic uncertainty, that creates a tremendous amount of stress and strain, and that can lead to violence, especially, say, domestic violence, right? So we could have responded to COVID in a much different way, right? We were profoundly stingy compared to the rest of countries around the world, and that, at least, you know, wealthy countries, and that meant that we created an environment that was going to breed violence, right? We viewed this as like economics over here, crime over there. But our decision to not write checks and not write checks and not write checks and just make people suffer through unemployment numbers that we'd never seen before, right? That has a crime-causing impact. And we know that has a crime-causing impact. And there are, we, you know, this is established, but we sort of chose to ignore it because of the, the, you know, the national politics of it, right? But some of the crime fallout that we will be dealing with for years from now comes from our inability to take advantage of what we know about economic uncertainty and economic instability and crime and pretend that wasn't true as the pandemic sort of upended, you know, the entire sort of economic system for, for millions of people. But I mean, I do think, right, I mean, it would be, it would be nice if, if, you know, those kind of material factors, you know, were like an overwhelming lever on, on violence and, and crime. But I mean, we really did see uh, violent crime rates continuing to drop through the sort of smallest 2001 recession through the very severe uh, 2008. I mean, I, I had a lot of concern at that time. Like, that was a really bad economic situation. It lasted for a long time. Um, but fortunately, I mean, for whatever reason, we sort of had most Mostly, mostly good news in, in terms of, of violence then. And that really actually set the stage for a lot of reform, right? In, right. A, in a slightly perverse way, like states were feeling a lot of budgetary pressure, right. um, but like violent crime continued to decline. So I think it became much more sort of acceptable in mainstream political circles to say, you know, we got to look at what we can what we can pair back here. See, what I think is like so important about your book is trying to caution people off certain level of like wishful thinking about this whole problem yeah. that like just like harmless pot smokers and like really sympathetic defendants are going to get the work done of sort of being more humane. And I don't want people to fall into it different, but I think similar kind of trap of being like, well, the economy is going to get better. The pandemic's going to go away. These, these problems are, are going to, going to abate because, you know, if we want to have interpersonal safety and we want to have an environment in which people can think more humanely about what we're doing, we still do have a kind of a, a big issue on our hands. Yeah. I mean, I think your, your final point, I think is important was to realize that, you know, there isn't an easy solution to this, especially on the political front. But, but I think it's also, I think it's really important to appreciate how little evidence we have about how well policing and prisons actually reduce crime, right? That, that they certainly, or, or maybe they're phrased a little more carefully, right? I, I do think there's this problematic framing. Some people on the left sometimes use as saying, well, police don't reduce crime period, right? That's clearly not true, right? Policing does reduce crime, right? More cops does generally lead to less crime, but more police leads to less crime at an extreme sort of social cost and, and a social cost you've never really measured very carefully, right? And, and so the question isn't, no, do cops reduce crime? It's do cops reduce crime enough over the options that we have to make focusing on them the right way to go. And I think framed that way, the defense of policing becomes much harder. They have huge social costs. And, and realize that every cost-benefit analysis we've seen on policing compares the crime reduction of policing to the budgetary costs of policing. How much do we spend on cops? Which means George Floyd's death doesn't show up in these cost-benefit analyses, right? The emotional strain of Black parents having to talk with their kids so their kids are afraid just to see the cop down the street, not necessarily because he's going to kill them, but he's going to harass them, right? Plenty of black men have described stop and frisk as basically a form of sexual assault, right? They push against the wall. They tend to grab your groin and grab in really like humiliating kind of ways. Like these are, these are real costs that we, we just don't 
measure, right? And, and that there is, in fact, a large body of evidence about things like drug treatment and economic support and, and after school programming and community organizations and even like restricting access to alcohol, making it just harder and more expensive to get alcohol, right? The single biggest drug for crime is alcohol, right? There are things that we can do and that we know we can do, but we still tend to instinctively just ask the police, what should we do? And we still tend to view the police as kind of objective discussants of what's going on. And they're not. They are a very powerful political interest group that's feeling incredibly threatened. And they are going to argue that the solution is more of them. And it's not. And there are things we can do. We just need to get make this point stronger so politicians feel more comfortable and more compelled to try to embrace these things on a, on a much bigger scale. All right. Um, John Pfaff, uh, Fordham University uh, professor of law. The book is Locked In, The True Causes of Mass Incarceration and How to Achieve Real Reform. Um, I really uh, recommend it to people who want a good sort of grounding in in what the, the big drivers of mass incarceration are, what this whole kind of topic is. Um, thank you so much uh, for joining me. Um, thanks as always to our sponsors, our producer, Eric Janikas, uh, and the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.